I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on Crime Time NYC. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We have a new mayor, Eric Adams, who campaigned on the theme safety and justice, meaning that he could bring safety to the streets of New York City, many which are seeing upticks in crime, and also justice so that innocent people are not caught up in these sweeps and caught up in these arrests, which have caused civil rights violations in the past. We have a great panel to break this all down. Can Mayor Adams really make the streets safer without alienating communities, especially communities of color and other areas where crime is running the streets? Joining me for this conversation is Michael Oliva. He's the president of Sykes Global Communications and a political consultant. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us is Keith. No, it's great to have you back with us. Also with us is Keith Taylor. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, as well as a former NYPD supervisor. He played many different roles within the NYPD and correction during his law enforcement career. Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Liz. We appreciate it. Also joining us is Aisha Seku. She's a CEO and founder of Street Corner Resources, a Harlem anti-violence activist. Aisha, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. As okay. always, thank you for having me. No, no problem. No problem. Okay. Um, Michael, I want to start with you on this. Mayor Adams campaigned on this theme of safety and justice. How realistic was that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it, he's still in sort of the, the honeymoon phase here. And you have, you know, with Omicron, it's not a very romantic honeymoon, but um and he's sort of he's dealing with a lot of moving parts. I mean, I see the way he really was very kind to D.A. Alvin Bragg in Manhattan when he just introduces reforms. Um, he had there are both this Tom Swazi who's on one side of the safety debate with bail reform. You have some of the activists who are on the other side. And he's, he's trying to speak to both sides of that uh, debate as well. Um, and, you know, there are very different perspectives on on what these numbers mean when, when you talk about the numbers from the first your bail reform. And, but you have to remember something, you know, when Eric Adams came up before he was in the state Senate, he, not only was he a police officer, but he used to run around with Norman Siegel and he did a lot of work on sort of police brutality on fairness, you know, for black men and women in the police department. So he's really seen this issue from both sides. And I think that that's an advantage for him going into neighborhoods. Um, also, you know, being a black man himself, you know, and knowing that people in those communities don't necessarily align with the 5% of people on Twitter who are yelling the loudest. And, you know, they're, a lot of them are clamoring for safety right now. And, and he's saying exactly what they, they, they want to hear. So I think he has a lot of tools in his toolbox moving forward. Let's just see if he can put the pieces together and try to make everybody happy. Aisha, in terms of from from your your standpoint, because you work with police officers at times, but you're also critical of the department when you feel they're not responsive to the needs of the community. What do you think it is about Eric Adams' background that might make it things different in terms of the streets becoming safer? Well, I'm I'm concerned about one or two things. Uh, one, uh, I want to say congratulations to him and. Uh, to welcome him as mayor in this great city, which we know requires a great deal of responsibility. So I think that his background gives him insight. I think that he has been somewhat, though, removed from direct policing. And I think that his uh, agenda, I've, I've been reading over some of his uh, safety plan, and I, I, I have to say that uh, I did have a conversation with him before he became mayor. But what I see is, is that it's um, 
It's, it's pretty aggressive. And I think that bringing back impact cops on the street without new training may not be a good idea. How do you bring the ones who caused the problem in the past back to do the job and expect that it's going to be different without a time period for proper training, not a slap on the wrist, not a talking to, not an expectation, but training how to do that job of being on the street and, and not wearing a uniform, but out of uniform. How do you keep those cops from turning rogue? He and we're going to talk about and we're gonna get into cop. And we're going to get into some of those specific uh, specific proposals of him coming up in the show. But Keith, let me get your first, in, uh, you know, for your first uh, opinion on this because Mayor Adams, he's bringing this actual policing experience. I mean, he's been with us on Street Soldiers going back to the late 1990s when he was definitely not Mr. Popularity within the department. He faced a lot of challenges just coming up through the ranks, but he was reaching out to the community on his own time telling people, how do you behave when you're stopped by police? Because there were so many people getting caught up in these stop and frisk things. What do you think it is about his background that may bring a new perspective to the mayor? Well, I think that uh, with his background, he's going to be able to hit the ground running because he's not going to have to understand this monstrosity of a police department and its culture. Uh, Additionally, he, I think, is showing symbolically and in real terms with his appointment of Commissioner Sewell uh, as the first woman and first African, well, first African-American woman and first woman to Period, be, right. uh, yeah, which I think really sets the stage, sets the tone for uh, his intolerance for inappropriate behavior, both within the department, as well as policing uh, our communities. And I believe there is going to be an emphasis on uh, making certain that policing in poor communities, in black black and brown communities, uh, and with dealing with immigrants, that those are going to be dealt with in a very um, uh, handling those communities with care. I think that's going to be the goal. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the most controversial proposals that Mayor Adams campaigned on, bringing back the anti-crime plainclothes police officers. We're going to find out what our panel has to say about that. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Stay with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson. And right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl, Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Mayor Eric Adams is promising to bring safety to New York City, as well as respecting every citizen's at every resident's civil rights. Can he do that? Is that a realistic goal? We're going to find out what our panel has to say about this. Joining me is Michael Oliva. He's the president of Sykes Global Communications, as well as a political consultant. Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Keith Taylor. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a former NYPD supervisor. Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And also joining us is Aisha Sekou. She's the CEO and founder of Street Corner Resources and a Harlem anti-violence activist uh, for many years. Aisha, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Michael, uh, politically, just from your wearing your political consultant hat, when Mayor Adams first said, we're bringing back the anti-crime cops, these precinct-based plainclothes units that were notorious or involved in some of the most controversial 
police shootings of the last 20 years, notorious for not having their badges out when they rolled out of the unmarked cars with the license plates uh, you know, bent over halfway so you couldn't see what they are or no, no license plates at all. He took a lot of criticism for that, but he said, no, they have to come back. What about that as a, from a political risky standpoint? Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to insert my own feelings here a little bit. I, I mean, I don't like these units because I think they, they're, you know, they're very intimidating. A lot of times there are, there are kids around. They don't know what's happening. These guys come out of nowhere. They look like a gang. They're not sure, you know, and it, it, it sets up a false narrative here, which is I think that like taxpaying citizens in certain communities have to choose between either safety and civil rights. And that shouldn't have to be a choice. You should be able to have both. Um, we talk about community policing, which is presence on the street, living in the community, knowing the people that you're policing, just as a, just as a teacher would live in a community and know who the teacher was teaching. This, these to me are more effective ways. And I, and I feel like that you can still be tough on crime, but I think there's going to be a lot of pushback with this stuff. And, and, and I, I don't, I'm not really sure it's the right solution, both logistically or politically. Okay. But re- realistically, I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, rising crime, especially compared going back to, to 2019, a lot of changes in the laws that affect how police, police officers operate. Uh, Keith Taylor, as a, as, a, as a former NYPD supervisor with your experience there on the streets, Adam says this is not going to be the same anti-crime units from the past because, number one, they're going to be wearing body cameras that must be functioning. What do you say to that? I, yeah, I think that technology is really going to help with accountability, body cams being one thing. Also, the disciplinary uh, process of the police department has changed significantly. So the types of uh, uh, inappropriate actions that may have been taken in the past are going to be dealt with in a, in a different way. Additionally, you have the law enforcement partners the Manhattan DA's office, the other DA's that are going to be looking, uh, you know, to process violent criminals and, and, and violent crime specifically and not be uh, as interested in, in the uh, lesser crimes that consume the very finite resources that these agencies have. Aisha, what about what about bringing back a, a, a 2022 version of these anti-crime units? You've talked a lot about your, you operate in some of the most violent precincts in the city where the shootings Absolutely. are happening, where innocent people are getting caught in the crossfire, where kids are can easily get guns. What do you say to that? I mean, is it is it is it you, enough you know, measures? Lisa, uh, you know, I've always used my voice to stand up against uh, policing that is not policy. And so we've seen these these tactical teams jump out on people, bang people's head on the ground, oftentimes have the wrong people only to just kind of pat them up and say, oh, sorry that we treated you so bad. So rising crime is not justification to, to take away people's civil rights in their community, to mistreat them, to violate them. And of course, to violate them in front of young children and our elders. It causes trauma in our community that is directly related to the way that the police respond. So I would recommend to our mayor, uh, Adams, that he first make sure that these police are properly trained. You can't put the same police who acted in a negative behavior, violating people's rights, you can't put them back in the street. And, and maybe they had a three or four year respite 
where they weren't in the street, however long it's been. But to go back in, you go back in with the same mindset, the same behavior and the same actions because those were justified because there was high crime. We have to expect from the police to act within police policy that we have some of the best intel in the country to find out where the guns are, who are supplying them, how they're coming in, who's committing crimes. We don't have to act, have police officers act as rogues, as gangs in our streets and terrify our community on the other end. Neither is a solution. Having gang members terrify the community or having police terrify under the justification of high crime. Both are wrong, both traumatize our community, and it does not make our community better. So I'm expecting that Mayor Adams do more to train these officers for proper behavior, to respect our community, no matter what's going on, that the intel has to be used properly, and of course, with respect. All right. Yeah, let, me, let me just add to that too, that I, you know, I think if you were to poll people in any community, and you know, my colleagues on this panel are, know more about this than I do, but you know, I'd say nine times out of 10, they would like to see more police officers in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's just, they don't want them to be sneaking up in disguise. You know, it, it, police presence is something I think we, he can increase and that will, it's a deterrent and it will help, you know, deter crime. But this idea that like people don't know, it's almost like it feels like an entrapment. You know? well, you but, but there's a thing, but there's a thing, there's a very yeah. real thing. And Keith, I want to get your, your opinion on this too. There's a very real, right. th there, there's the streets, there's a street psychology, which a lot of commentators have said, a lot of policing experts and community leaders have said, there is no fear anymore of people getting stopped for having a gun. And that's why there's so many guns. That's why we've seen five times as many bullets fired on the streets of New York in the last two years than ever before. So it's, they say there's no fear because, and that's why the people feel comfortable carrying these guns. Keith, what about that? Uh, so absolutely. Uh, when you see the statistics going up like that, that certainly uh, feeds into the fear that communities are getting less safe and the, the need for a physical police presence there. But the, the you know, having community, not just having the police department address the issue, but having, uh, you know, uh, or things like Operation Ceasefire, working on the most targeted few individuals that are causing most of the gun violence in the community, having uh, community partners, uh, Aisha Siku has done a tremendous amount of work in this to help stop the violence before yes. it gets to the point of, of gunfire as resolution. Also, things like uh, hospital intervention for uh, individuals who become a victim of gun violence. Uh, those are evidence-based uh, uh, things that have a real difference in the amount of gun violence that can uh, can occur in a community. And we really need to make certain that whatever solution is, is done by the mayor and by the city incorporates all these aspects of, uh, of addressing crime from not just intervention, but from a preventative uh, measure. All right, this is Street Soldiers. We are talking about Crime Time NYC. The uh, city officials, as well as the police department, say that a lot of the shootings, a lot of the violence is being committed by very young men, many of them teens, 99% of them or more or all of them involved in some type of gang activity, allegedly. What are they doing to stop that? Will this precision policing and these partnerships with communities and other law enforcement entities help turn that around? We'll find out what our guests have to say when we come back. 
Hey, what up, y'all? This is Lloyd, the King of Hearts, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 9-7. You dig? Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about Crime Time NYC, a new mayor, and some new proposals about how to turn around the surge in shootings that we've seen and also the slight uptick in murders in New York City. Joining me for this conversation, Michael Oliva. He's the president of Sykes Global Communications and a political consultant. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We appreciate it. Also with us, Keith Taylor. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a former NYPD supervisor. Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Also joining us, Aisha Sekou. She's the CEO and co-founder of Street Corner Resources, a Harlem anti-violence activist and been very involved in a lot of the work uh, in the community for many years. Aisha, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. I want to I want to start with with something with the, with this whole gang issue because they say that the driving force behind all the most of the shootings, the vast majority are gang members, gang activity, some of them as young as 13 and and 14 years old. So the police department and Mayor Adams says he wants to use this precision policing that was started under Commissioner Shea, where instead of these big gang sweeps that we saw in years past, where there would be 100, 200 people arrested in various locations all on the same day, some of them were just in the house where the person was, you know, the wanted person was, and they were all taken in and then brought through the court process. They're now using this precision policing, these long-term investigations to get uh, people pre-indicted and then bringing them in like we we saw recently in Brooklyn where they had 17 alleged gang members uh, pre-indicted, brought in, involved with murders, more than a dozen shootings. Um, as I saw last spring in May when they arrested the, uh, alleg- the gang members allegedly responsible for for killing baby Devel Gardner Jr. in Bed-Stuy. So it's not that just let's throw out a wide net. Let's really figure out who the active shooters are. Keith, how different is this from the way they've operated in the past? I, I think that uh, any improvement to policies and, and, and procedures that lead to better outcomes for the community, that's always a positive, certainly with the use of technology. But I just wanted to mention that when we look at gang activity and gang violence, that the gangs are the front office of, of, of crime that's occurring in communities. In the back office, you have transnational criminal organizations that are bringing oh. in the drugs and bringing in the guns and bringing in the human beings that are trafficked uh, in, in our communities. And so that uh, the relationship between local police departments like the NYPD with the state and federal partners and even international has to be very uh, pronounced and very robust because if we don't deal with the big guys and, and girls that are causing all these gangs to try to make money from the illicit crimes uh, that they are involved in, then then we're just going to be continuing with this uh, this this tailspin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael, politically, politically for the mayor, though, how how sensitive is the way he handles and navigates the the public perceptions about this whole issue? Because some people are saying, well, he's going to go look like he's going too far to the right with this anti-crime thing. And it's going to come across as being anti-community. Other people are saying, you know what, he's got to navigate this whole new uh, laundry list of, of local and federal legislative changes that deal with how police operate. How sensitive an issue is this going to become for the mayor? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, these communities 
are as complex as any body of people anywhere, right? It's it's not as if like there's this monolithic view of what should happen. And I mean, even the city council who, you know, nobody would, would accuse of being a very conservative body sort of was pushing for, you know, detainment of younger men who have guns because there was their community was just, were saying we, we can't keep letting people back out on the street. Um, so I think the more time he spends engaging with leaders like we have on this panel, um, the more he'll be educated on sort of what's working, what's not working. And as far as, the, you know, say, you know, and there, there are three elements here, right? You have the DAs, you have the, the legislators, you have the mayor. The DA might institute a policy which, which conflicts with the state law, which conflicts with the mayor's policy. And th these bodies also have to get together and talk and say, I know you, we, all, we may have differing political objectives, but how do we set up a system between us that really works for everybody? Exactly. Both through the legislature, through the city, and through the, the law enforcement offices. Aisha, you had, a, yeah. you had the, in, in terms of the guns coming in, into the community, we were, I was at the NY, NYPD crime lab. They had a gun that they found out in working with the ATF, a 14-year-old brought a loaded Ruger into a New York City public high school. When they traced back the bullets to it, it and the gun, it turned out that the gun was used in four other previous crimes. Um, Keith, does that surprise you? Yeah, and I just want to mention that ghost guns are going to really be a very big problem unless it's dealt with at the federal level. Being able to create the most of a gun in your own home with a 3D printer and then just order the rest of the parts needed means that you have an untraceable weapon that anybody, regardless of their mental state or, or criminal behavior, they're able to access these guns. So it, it's, it's not just going to be guns that we're able to trace and show that they've been used in previous crimes, but also these guns that will pop up that we don't have any record of, of them being, of them being there. Aisha, in, ter in, terms of the, in terms of the guns coming into the community, Commissioner Shea, former NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea said, you know what, they're making, it, they're making more arrests than ever before on these, on these, for these gun possessions, but there's more guns than ever before coming into the city. What do you think would really stop it? Well, Lisa, one is, like I said, we have one of uh, the greatest uh, police departments in the country or in the world, right? People look to us for information. So one, we have the advantage of having all kinds of intel at, at, at our uh, fingertips. We are not using that intel in a way to find out how the guns are coming in. Everybody knows, there's no secret, that the Iron Pipeline plays a massive a part in bringing guns from the South to the North, places where guns are not controlled. You can go in and buy a gun without ID almost. Uh, they don't check your age and you can bring a trunk full of guns up into New York City. That's not new. We also know that during the pandemic, when they brought the firecrackers, they brought the guns. Some of the same people who sell firecrackers all across the country sell those sell guns as well. When they couldn't have gun shows and they couldn't sell firecrackers, they brought those up into, into our city. So what we have to do is look at where the guns are coming from, which we know, how they are coming. I think at one time we heard uh, someone talk about uh, like a kind of border patrol setting from state to state. That might work until we lessen the amount of guns coming in. Uh, we also have to look at the intel in the communities. We have cameras that can see and hear 
And so who's monitoring it? Who's providing the oversight for all of these cameras, very expensive cameras that have been installed? Who's providing the oversight to hear where the guns are? I think also we already know we can't arrest away this problem. We cannot make massive arrests and think the guns will disappear. And that it's going to stop. Just exactly. Stay in the closet, in the house. I've done gun buybacks. I had a father bring in five guns, two sons locked up. And he, I said, where did you get all of these guns? He said, my sons are locked up. I'm, uh, he was shaken. But he said that these guns had been in his house. He lived in a major housing project where a ta- big takedown had happened. It didn't stop the guns because the guns were in this man's closet, not just his, but plenty of others. And so what we have to have to look at is when these arrests are made, do the history. Where's the guns? The houses need to be for real check, not just torn apart. Where are the guns? And then follow where the guns are because they just get passed around. They don't always get confiscated. And so no one knows where the gun is. So you have a case that you can't fully prosecute because you don't have the weapon and you have a gun that's still moving through a community. So we need to use the intel that we have to find out where the guns are. No, and and also license plate readers and all these other technologies. All of that. Michael, in in terms of, when you talk about gun violence, there's pretty much unity among a lot of different political spectrums. People are like, nobody wants gun, but nobody's like, yes, we want gun violence. Nobody wants gun violence. But as soon as you start talking about controlling the flow of guns in any kind of way, it becomes much more of a hot potato politically. Why is that? Well, you know, let me just backtrack a little. I feel like, you know, I might be suggesting something that you won't hear often, but the media plays a role in this, too, in the sense that, you know, there's no lack of stories about gangs and people shooting people and people committing crimes. But I don't know if you remember, uh, what was his name? Freeway uh, Rick Ross, the the real Rick Mm -hmm. Ross. He thought he was the best drug dealer on the planet. He didn't know he was working for the federal government, right? And the press uncovered that. And, you know, so I think there has to be more scrutiny on, you know, a lot of a lot of young people in these neighborhoods. They don't know who they're working for either sometimes, you know, and it's sort of there has to be a a wider lens on what's occurring. And I think that'll make it easier politically in the sense that people will start to see, wait a minute, this is a much bigger picture than we're even seeing. And the sort of pressure needs not just be put on young people in the community but people who are providing them with the weapons and the drugs and everything else. Absolutely. You know? We just saw, let, let, but let me ask you about that. And that's that idea that there's people, there's hidden hands that are, are, are bringing in the guns and, and doing not all growing this it in the backyard. but there's also the thing of what, what the, you know, what, what the detectives say is, you know, there's only, and they want to be very clear about this. And Mayor Adams has already said this uh, numerous times is there's only a certain, there's a small percentage that are actually capable of pulling the trigger and they're pulling the trigger. However, you know, that are actually doing these shootings like they had with a Brooklyn gang of, of a, approximately 200 members, they had 17 and, and just um, five of them were actually the ones that were doing, you know, were shooters. responsible for the killing. But the, my, my question is, we have this other issue that's going on right now involved with the gun violence and that I see in these indictments, This the, the, recent, case in, the recent case in Brooklyn, they had three gang sets that joined together to form a super gang with that's 200 right. members. And then they were recruiting, they were putting themselves out on social media and on videos on YouTube with the actual weapons that were used in the crime doing it to music and using those as recruiting tools, according to the Brooklyn DA, to recruit kids as young as 11 and 12 years old. Keith, how can law enforcement deal with something like that that's 
culturally, it's culturally acceptable to have a, you know, a rap sounding type video and, you, and you're waving the guns around. Uh, mm-hmm. By having partners in uh, the mental health community and the educational community and social services, having partners to help provide intervention to, to get this process derailed. Uh, because certainly those who are in gangs involved in crime are going to do everything they can to recruit and to make their lifestyle seem, uh, as uh, incredible as possible. But nothing could be further from the truth. And what's interesting is that these gangs, these rival gangs that will go, will shoot each other in the street, will join together when it comes to making money. So uh, right. in terms of mind, you know, we're not able to change people from becoming you know, shooters. Look at the what what money does. That. And uh, gangs are nothing new. Again, we have to look at what structures are empowering these gangs that are providing them the resources mm-hmm. to be able to, to right, do because what that's what people want to people want to find out Aisha people people are asking like how does a 14 year old get a gun yes we know about community guns that are shared among different people but what mm-hmm. do you what do you see happening there in Harlem you know and and not just Harlem you know street corner resources has our base in Harlem but we actually do workshops all across the country and we're seeing some common threads, a trend all across the country that uh, parents are paying less attention to their young person's involvement and their activity in school and who they're connected with. You know, there was a time when you had to bring your friends home and introduce them to your parents. Right. Young people no longer do that. They meet the parent and the, I mean, the, the, the kid and the parent on FaceTime, hey, how you doing? And they don't know what's going on. So I'm in agreement with Keith. We have to find out who are the people that are pulling the strings in the back, who are controlling our kids. And a lot of it is happening through what's called drill music. And so there are stories within the drill music that talks about dancing on the grave of some former uh, gangbanger or person who was killed by a gang. And that's an insult to that gang and that person's family. And so it creates a whole scenario of shooting and fighting and, you know, and then it gets bigger and bigger because more people become involved even across the country. And so we have to look at all of that, all of those pieces. We have to look at uh, the mental health in our community that when there is a family member who is suffering from mental illness and they have children, what's happening with the children? What are they growing up in? And this is what so, Mayor Adam, right? And he was he was talking about. He said the the, the he said the, the these young men and these boys, a lot of them, you know, they're coming from homeless shelters. They're coming from foster care. They're coming from buildings that I see every day in Harlem. I walk out of a building that I live in myself with people in the hallway, grown men, grown men, not going to work, but operating different kinds of ways in that hallway. Right. That's not just the hallway that I come through. It's the whole way that tons of young people have to walk through and navigate to go to school. So they hear the stories about the shootings and the killings. They see the weed and drug use. And so they have to navigate that in order to get to school, sometime never getting to school. And they get buy in into negative behavior because it is uh, right in front of them. It's on the stoop. It's in the hallway. It's on the corner store. So what are we allowing our they always uh, have to become? And they always have an opportunity. Opportunity yeah, our community is becoming an incubator for this yeah. violence. It is. That's, sorry, that's 
I mean, that's such an excellent point because I mean, when you, when you think of community involvement, it's, you know, a lot of these young people would be great business people, right? They set up structures, they, they move product, they do all these things that if this, this creativity were channeled in a different direction could be very productive. Um, so it, it's not just the police and it's not just the lawmakers and it's, it's, you know, it's people like mentoring people and saying, you're, you're extremely talented. Let's just point this in a, in a better direction. You know? uh, all right. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention very quickly the trauma that's experienced by these young people, these young men, especially oh, yeah. age 15, 24, unaddressed can that's lead right. to bad decision making. No, That's absolutely. Right. We're going we're gonna to get it. We're going to get into that. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. One of the solutions for uh, crime, Mayor Adams says, is going to involve prevention and intervention. However, if that doesn't work, you will be prosecuted. We're going to find out about prevention and intervention, what our panel has to say about that when we come back. Yeah, yeah. What up? What up? What up? This is Styles Peter Ghost, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Yeah, Ghost told you so. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about Crime Time NYC. Mayor Eric Adams says he plans to provide more preventive measures and intervention for youth at risk so that they're not lured into the street life so easily, so that they have adults, caring adults and accessibility to resources in their lives so they don't have to pick up a gun or get involved in that kind of gang lifestyle that we see, unfortunately, so many getting involved in. Joining us for this conversation, Michael Oliva. He's the president of Sykes Global Communication and a political consultant. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We appreciate it. Also with us is Keith Taylor. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a former NYPD supervisor. Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Also joining us is Aisha Seku. She's a CEO and founder of Street Corner Resources and an anti-violence activist known first in Harlem and then now around the country. Aisha, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me as always, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Keith, Mayor Adams is talking about that a lot of the a lot of the young, there's a certain profile of the people that get involved in gang activity. They're they're most overwhelmingly male overwhelmingly young. And he said black, brown and or poor. And he said that these are conditions that they're coming from traumatic households or coming from a lot of um, unstable family situations. They may have learning disabilities. How Uh real are those social factors in terms of basically the resume of a of a potential criminal? Uh, They're quite real. And uh, what is most disturbing is that uh, policies and policymakers don't necessarily acknowledge the societal issues that go into this development of those conditions, uh, the the poverty, the the concentration of it, the focus of uh, not just drug use and drug dealing, but drug treatment centers that are unpopular in other areas. There's no connection to the past things like redlining and how they help develop communities and, uh, you know, resulting in, in these uh, continual problems occurring, the concentration of these problems where uh, people of color who are impoverished exist. So it should not be a surprise that young people growing up in this environment are traumatized and don't have access to many things that are needed for them to have healthy uh, lifestyle outcomes. 
Michael, in, in terms of these these issues, again, coming back to the, the, the politics of it and these issues, Mary Adams talks about in New York City, sadly, we have over 100,000 children who are homeless and who, who knows how many more tens of thousands are unstably housed. Um, he talks about that as one, one of the issues. When you start to talk about social issues, these are not things that are going to turn up, you know, show changes in month to month crime statistic reports. What do you think, how risky is that for him to take on these issues this early on? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I Her name's escaping me, but there is a, a woman in San Francisco who just wrote a, a one of these like Substack pieces where she talked about, you know, everyone in my, everyone, all of our elected officials are Democrats. They're very progressive and, you know, there's crime, there's homelessness everywhere. Um, and I think that People on sort of like you could call New York City the Democratic side of the equation have to sort of explore what's working and what's not um, and what may work in different times better. I mean, because I think on one end and what, you know, Mr. Taylor was talking about is that there needs to be a holistic approach as far as community involvement, people being brought up in a better environment, outreach, everything that. Uh, Ms. Siku is doing as well. Um, but there also has to be law enforcement, right? It's not one or the right. other. You don't solve it on the front end. You don't solve it on the back end. You solve it on both ends. And I think as long as he's consistent, Mayor Adams, on that message, and as long as, like, you know, constant involvement with the community, open dialogue, crime, between crime and, and you know, COVID right now, you're not reading about much else. And No, you know, exactly. I mean, those are the huge issues. And I think he'll be given a little bit of leeway as long as the engagement is there. And by the way, you have to deal with the police officers too. I mean, you know, a lot of them are they're working people too, right? They're, you know, they're 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 diverse as well. A lot of them do live in the city, right? Um, it's so much more diverse than in the past. That's an old right. Narrative. So you right. so it's it's it's, it's he's going to have to work very hard and and talk to everybody involved. I you should t- talk with us about the. The trauma, you know, we, we we brought up the word. I think Keith brought up the word tra- trauma. But the, there's there's trauma in the community when there's shootings. When when there's a, you know, a, a drunk di- driving accident of a teenager in an affluent suburb, there's counseling. The school shuts down. There's counseling that's brought in. And yet we have so many children here in New York City. There's these shootings, especially the last two years, have been like in broad daylight and and you know, unaddressed. When, right. The the, the trauma that comes from not just the shooting that the young person may have just witnessed in 2021 or 2022, because we've had a few already, but from the, from the, from the shootings they have witnessed over years connected to their family, neighbors, the, the, the person who lives downstairs, the cousin, the uncle, the one they hear about in the hallway when they're in the hallway as well. I think that one, uh, we have to look at the crisis management system. I think we have one of the best, uh, cure violence systems in New York City, and we are still creating it even better and stronger, that we do have counselors, but we need more. We need to make sure that every single public school has at least two counselors. This work can become overburdening very quickly. We have a hospital responder program at Street Corner Resources, where we respond to one of the best trauma centers in the country at Harlem Hospital, but we see a lot of shootings and stabbings. We need more responders responding to different hospitals and we need to create our trauma units even better and stronger to not just provide counseling for those 
who are credible messengers and hospital responders, but res- but provide counseling for those who work in that hospital that see shooting and stabbing and shooting and stabbing, and they can't find the parents of the young person. There's a whole host of drop-down issues that happen when someone is shot, killed, stabbed, or brutally beaten that the community does not see that street corner resources team responds to. We need more response in the hospital and more support. We also need to make sure that our young people are fully engaged. No young person should be in a public school without a program. We used to have a program in public school that said what your day was going to be like and what your after school activities were going to be. And then we had to have shop. You know, I used to go to shop just to eat the food, you know, like to learn how to cook so I could eat. But it was a place where you were and the teachers talked to you. You talked about your home life. They got a chance to know what was going on. We don't have things like that that are happening in schools in a consistent way. You'll have one school that's fully stocked and others that are locked and empty after 2 30, 3 o'clock. No, exactly. And I want to be open and every school should be addressing the needs of our young people, everything from mental health, social work, engagement, activities, finding out what they like, and of course, preparing them on a track for a future. Most of these young people are pulling triggers and don't care about dying is because they don't have any projection or vision no of reason a to live. We have no to create to that for them. Absolutely. Yep. So those are some yep. recommendations I would make uh, to uh, Mayor, Mayor Adams. I've made some when I met with him. And I would also say that we have to make sure that we don't make the work that we do, a competitive kind of work, that we make it a collaborative work to save our communities, that it's not whose site is on the front line and whose is not in terms of cure violence or what school is the premier school and which one isn't, that every school should be a premier school. Every precinct should be doing the best work. Every expectation for every city agency. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time here, but Keith, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I just want to, the word collaboration is really important. Uh, the police department has to work with the community-based organization, like I used to just mention, uh, with its state and federal partners, with private industry, with many different groups that have a stake in the health of a community. And I also mm-hmm. just wanted to say, you know, the police department, the officers, the hardest working officers in the world, uh, there has to be care given to uh, how the processes that they're chosen, uh, the disciplinary process is something that's been worked on, and mm-hmm. promotion. And I think with the leadership that he's putting in place, that we have uh, hope for substantive positive change Definitely. to address Michael, those systemic issues. My, Michael, final word. We're, we're also in the process, this process from what a, a lot of police officers have told me as well, is kind of like reimagining policing from this kick down the door you know, haul people away and daisy chains, um, that that type type of thing. The do you think that we're kind of in a transition period too, and that this is just this is the, the next step? Well, I would say that I, I, you know, first of all, I think the residency requirement is you know a good thing to move towards, um, and I would even suggest sort of like building housing for police officers so they can live really close to the people that they. They represent, they, you know, they're, they're to protect. Um, and, you know, to Ms. Siku's point again, look, like all these things that even people in the poorest neighborhoods used to take for granted, you know, shop, home act, football, you know, basketball, drama yes. club, chorus. No, after school programs, that, we have know, so many. Wood shop, auto shop, anything that kids, debate club used to want 
where they felt a part of something like most kids don't even have that anymore. You'd be surprised what schools don't even have that anymore. No, like they, they don't even, I'm go, you know, yeah. we need to do a show on that because that, and I'm, I'm glad you all raised that point is uh, would, it's going to have to be I our, would, fu- go ahead. Okay. No, I would just add that, you know, if police officers could be, could even become a part of that. And then everybody that's right. Well, they like are. Us. I mean, they, they're already yeah. doing that. We saw that. Um, yeah. We did our push for peace this past year with yeah. which Aisha, Aisha was at at the uh, Brownsville Community Center, which has turned out to be extremely popular, run by the NYPD officers with the NYPD Foundation. And one of the big factors was a lot of the teens were going there. There's all sorts of different programs, all kinds of di- not just sports, but everything and a lot for the girls, too. And it's a safe environment. That was a key thing. It's a it's a safe environment for them to go into and participate. And that's shown this whole new approach of the police department with the community in, in one of the, you know, one of the most challenging neighborhoods and under-resourced communities in the city, if not the country. So I think that whole piece and then also, too, it's it's everything you all are saying about the lack of resource. I'm always shocked that how many schools don't have sports, how you can go into an affluent community and kids are scheduled. Like, you know, some parents say from morning until the time they come home and eat dinner, do their homework and go to sleep. And yet in the city, we have one o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Kids are out on the streets. Yeah. Kids are out on the streets at one o'clock in the afternoon. What do you think they're going to do the rest of the time? But anyway, um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit further down the road and see how these, uh, ideas and predictions and plans um, come into shape. But I want to thank all of you for being with us for this episode of Speed Soldiers. Michael Oliva, great to have you with us again. Thank you so much. Uh, Keith Taylor, great to have you. Thank you for joining us. And Aisha Seku, thank you so much for always being a voice uh, for the community and joining joining us once again. We appreciate it. And thank Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speed Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.